See Your Church Through the Eyes of Renowned Author, Professor, and Consultant, Dr. Bob Weitzel. Today on Episode 1 of The Reclaimed Leader. Welcome to The Reclaimed Leader, a podcast by two pastors trying to lead their churches through revitalization and change. Their mission, to share their journey with you so it might help you in yours. And now, here, please welcome our hosts, Jason Tucker and Jesse Skiffington. Welcome to episode one of the Reclaim Leader podcast, helping you lead your church in a changing world. I'm Jason Tucker. This is my co-host, Jesse Skiffington, with me, my partner in crime. How you doing, Jesse? Doing well. Excited to get this launched and get going. I know, right? It's exciting. This is finally happening. Episode one, the ground floor, the what we're about to be doing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's going to be fun to dig in and see where God leads us, where we find ourselves. And uh, as we, I mean, the two of us, we're learning as we go too. So can't wait to see where we end up with this. Yeah. And I thought... I thought Jesse for our first one, you know, we would talk a little bit about our story, you know, why why a podcast? Why are we doing this? How did we kind of dream this up? And I thought maybe you'd share a little bit about, you know, our process and, you know, kind of how we started hanging out in seminary and where it has led really to this point. Well, I mean, from the the flag football field to the classroom, you know, we <laughs> had a shared affinity for uh That's right, baby. Yeah, that's Dutch right. Uncle. Championship, championship. Uh, co-rec flag football. It's the big time. But you and I remember our conversations and we talked about options for coming out of seminary. Do you go into an existing church and and face the hard work of change and renewal and uh, creating a vibrant witness in an established church? Or do you you go and start something new? You you go to a a strip mall and you open something up. And I think our hearts were drawn to learning to lead in the environment or the context of the established local church and working for, for change and a, and a fresh expression of, of ministry there. So uh, we've learned a lot. I know you and I have learned a lot in our, as we've talked, and uh, we want to learn with, with others. So that's kind of a little bit what's behind it for me. I, I want to continue to learn how to lead change uh, in a changing world. It's, 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 it's intense. Yeah. No, I think it's awesome. And, you know, one of the things that I know that you and I have done over the last few years, you know, since seminary, we're on opposite ends of the country and we've had a chance to connect pretty much every month. I mean, there have been some times where we had some lag time, but but checking in and just having conversations, what's going on in our churches and thought, wouldn't it be great if we can invite other leaders into this conversation because we know that there are people struggling with the same things that we are struggling with. I mean, we're trying to bring change in churches and, you know, you and I are both in, you know, denominational, mainline denominational churches and uh, yours is a little bit newer brand, but, right. but it's, it's really the same issues. Churches that have been around a long time. How do you navigate that? Because it seems like all of the coaching and resources that are available to us, uh, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but a lot of it is really geared toward non-denom or, mega church or younger churches in the sense of they haven't been around as long. And so they don't have some of the same issues. I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if we could start something together and start bringing people into a conversation about how to do this thing? Because it is hard. It is 
I'm sure you'll agree with me. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> That's right. It is okay. an immense yeah. challenge to tackle uh, and establish a congregation with its own culture and direction and focus some really healthy things, some not so healthy things. And knowing it as a young leader, especially learning how to navigate that stuff well and lead your church forward uh, is tricky. And I think, you know, in our conversations, we've been a big support to each other really uh, learning from each other, pointing each other towards resources that are helpful in an established denominational church context. And so um, that's some of what we want to share, too, is some of the things we've come across that have been helpful uh, as as we faced that that challenge. And so um, that's kind of what we're hoping to bring. So if that's interesting to you, we want to bring you some good resources that can help you take those steps uh, to, to lead change and uh, to face that challenge well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, too, positioning ourselves, you know, our hearts, I mean, we're just two pastors doing what you guys are all doing. You know, we're we're in the field. We're doing it. We don't have all the answers, but we want to try to have the right conversations that maybe can lead to some help for all of us as we because uh, we're on the same team. You know, I, I mean, let's let's not forget, you know, it's uh, we're all working for each other to win. And uh, so this podcast, The Reclaim Leader, the whole idea came out of a concept uh, as I was doing a vision series for my church, talking about what is what is it that we're trying to do and how could I relate that in a way that people really can get their heads around. And I said, you know, it's kind of like reclaimed furniture. So I said, you know, we're the antique table. Now, when you have an antique table, it could go one of two ways. Either it sits in a barn and it just rots and never gets used, or you restore that antique table so it looks so beautiful it never gets used. <laughs> it just looks awesome and becomes a museum piece. But we don't want either of those things. But at the same time, our church is never going to be the super modern, slick, futuristic table. That's just not us. But that's not our DNA. I think we're more like a reclaimed wood table. It is that we're taking what we've always been, but we're making it fresh and new and I think beautiful for people today. And so we thought, what would leadership look like in that vein? So the Reclaim Leader is how that was born. And I know, I mean, so many challenges come up when you're trying to, to make that happen in the life of the church. Some of the challenges, you know, I know that just right off the bat, you have staffing challenges, systems challenges. And that's, that's the biggest one that I've been fighting is that, you know, all the systems that you inherit when you come into a pre-existing church like this, that's been around a long time, all the systems you inherit aren't necessarily the systems what you need now. And so the process of going system by system, is this still working for today? If not, what are we going to replace it with? And so what I have to have is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to replace that system. So we're going to leave it and we're going to try to work around it. And it's just, uh, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. What about you? What are some other kind of challenges that you see? Have you tried to initiate change or bring change to make church have a greater impact on, uh, you know, I would say current and future generations. What are some of the things that you're bumping up against that, that you're, what are some of the obstacles that you're hitting? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good question. Um, for me, I think some of it is, uh, facing those, you know, we'll talk about this a little later as, as we reflect, but dealing with the reality in front of you and not, uh, and some alternate reality where you're pretending things are better than they are or, yeah. Uh, uh, just kind of dealing with that. But I think for us at, at the local church level, um, we're, we're facing hard conversations with real people who were passionate about starting a ministry, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago or more 
those ministries had a thriving life and now um, they don't. And so we're having to put a ton of energy into something that's not producing anything anymore, not uh, not really being effective the way that it maybe once was. And so having those hard conversations and sometimes even risking uh, some hurt feelings along the way so that we can move forward as a congregation and have a thriving life again. Um, and I guess I've been just kind of surprised about that part of it, how much of a toll that's taken on me as a leader, how much energy yeah. it takes to have hard conversations with staff or leaders uh, as we navigate change together. And, uh, and, you know, Jason, I know you and I, we've talked about this. We have the scars, scars to prove it, those hard conversations <laughs> yeah. and, and difficult yeah. things along the way. And I'm, will, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad um, for someone like you to talk to and to, to process this stuff with and, and to know that I'm not the only one out there who has a yeah. passion to see the church be vital in the world uh, and is willing to risk for the sake of change um, we're not alone. We're trying this thing. And, and so bringing people together around that conversation, I think is kind of what we're after. And so can't wait to see all the conversations that come out of this, uh, out of this time. Yeah. I mean, that's so huge, right? Just knowing that you are not alone. You are going through this and there are other people to talk to because so easily pastors, we have this nasty habit of just isolating and trying to just slog through stuff. And it's, it never comes out well. It never does. Like, I guess for a time you can kind of hibernate and figure things out. But unless you feel like you really have support of other people that you can really do this journey with, I think it just makes it just infinitely harder. Um, and so I really hope that this resource is going to help. And just to, I would say, ground it theologically even more, you know, I what was you know, the first gift of the Holy Spirit to the church was the gift of translation was translating the wonders of God into the language of the people. I think that is exactly what the church has always been called to do. We're taking timeless truth, but we're putting it into the language of the people. And that's where, at least my church, has failed over a long period of time, is is that church has just not been in the language of the people. And of course, we're talking about generational language, Mm -hmm. that uh, the generational language never changed, and so generations have been feeling increasingly disconnected. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you're right, Jason. We te- have a tendency to cement around our practices, around our language, and somehow over time, the way we do church becomes the mission rather than the fact that we are called to be that vibrant uh, presence of Christ in our world in a, in a relevant way. And that's the, the change that's been hardest for us here at Marine View is navigating through um navigating through those changes with sort of an intergenerational community in tow, how do we, how do we move forward without leaving the older generation behind? Yeah. How do we maintain intergenerational connectivity and the vibrancy of that relationship without, uh, failing to move forward? And so it's just a, it's a tremendous challenge. And so I think I'm glad that God is with us. I'm glad the Holy Spirit's still active and working. I'm glad we have each other to, to compare notes uh, on these things. And uh, uh, yeah, it's big, big time stuff. Awesome. So the format of, of this podcast is generally we're thinking we're going we're gonna to be having a guest who is an expert in a particular area that we think can help add to the conversation, give us some ideas and some encouragement and, you know, spark our brain, you know, some of the best things, it's like a good sermon. Some of the best parts of a good sermon have nothing to do with the actual sermon. It's, it's what, what tangent did it throw you on that set you in motion? Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that this podcast just helps set people in motion. Uh, 
And uh, we thought it was good for our very first episode to have a church consultant uh, come on board. So we had this interview with Bob Weitzel, and so we're going to share it with you now. Here is Dr. Bob Weitzel. Bob is the professor of missional leadership at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. I happen to know that he is a much sought after speaker and church growth consultant. In fact, he's done some consulting for our church, uh, which has been absolutely awesome. An award-winning writer, and I would say a prolific writer. So 11 books in 13 years, which is, I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, and these are, aren't just books that he pumps out fast. These are really good books on missional leadership, church change, church growth. Uh, he's been called by a national magazine the key spokesperson on change theory in the church today. He's got two earned doctorates, a D-min and a Ph.D. from Fuller where the faculty awarded him the Don McGavern Award for Outstanding Scholarship in Church Growth. And uh, I got to know Bob because he was my professor in the Demon Program at Fuller Seminary. He taught a really awesome class, and I happened to read one of his books um, at just the right time, which was all about preparing for change reactions. So I'm really excited to talk with my friend Bob Weitzel. Welcome, Bob. Good to be here today. Excellent. So, Bob, tell me a little bit about, I actually don't know the answer to this. Tell me a little bit about how you got into consulting. I mean, you are definitely a a man of the church, and you care a lot about the church and church growth, but how did this all happen for you? How did you get the consulting bug, and, you know, when did that happen? Well, I was going through a transition in my life and kind of saying, you know, am I called to pastoring? And I pastored for a number of years. And I had a very uh, important meeting with two people, uh, Elmer Towns and Kent Hunter. And Elmer Towns is the co-founder of Liberty University. And Elmer said, Bob, he said, you're really a teacher. And he said, your experience and your research in church growth, you really should be a teacher. And I I said, you know, well, that's kind of hard to get into the to be a professor that there's a long road and there's very few opportunities. And he said, well, I don't mean a professor. He said, I, you need to be a teacher of church pastors Mm. who are struggling. You have a good set of outside eyes. You can come and analyze what's going on and you can help them see the bigger picture. And right after that, I met with Kent Hunter, who is also very well known within the church growth movement and uh, has two earned doctorates himself. And Kent uh, confirmed, he said, Bob, he said, you know, you can pastor a church, you can go on doing that, but I really feel that you're called to go and teach pastors. And um, so uh, it, what it, it did, it, it took me into a road of of every week, almost every week, being in a different church, analyzing the situations that are going on. That led to my first uh, several books. And then Indiana Westland, uh, some of the leaders there had read a couple of my books, kind of like you, Jason, had read the book and said, man, this guy's got some good insights. I think they were a little disappointed when they saw me. They thought that was going to be much more impressive. But they... They, uh, Indiana Wesleyan started, you know, connecting and, and said, we'd like for you to teach uh, business courses, which was kind of interesting because so much of what I write on has to do with the organiz- the leadership of the organization. And there's a spiritual leadership, too, and I don't discount that, and I really believe strongly in that. My Ph.D. has uh, very large segments of theology and history and Bible in it. Uh, but one area I find kind of most pastors are mystified by because they're not taught in seminary is the actual leadership principles that will help a church reach more people for Christ. So my bottom line, uh, you know, 
is is to turn to 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 uh, direct more people back to their heavenly Father and to a restored relationship through Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So if I can do that by teaching pastors, and then what better place to teach pastors than seminary? Because a yeah. seminary is a graduate school, a professional school for church leaders. And so Indiana Wesleyan hired me first to teach business courses and the business program. And then eventually they came and they said, we'd like you to head up the uh, graduate program in ministry. And from that, so we had some success. It grew from about 20 to about 200 students in, a, in about three, four years where I was leading it. And then they asked us, uh, would you turn it into a full-fledged seminary? So we became the, a, a seminary about seven years ago, and we're the fastest growing seminary in the United States. We're now up over 500 students. We're in the top uh, 10% size-wise of seminaries in the United States. Uh, but it's all because we're all seminarians uh, who thought there could be a better way to do seminary. Yeah. So my whole life has been directed towards resourcing and helping pastors. Tell me if, if you would agree with this, Bob. It feels like nowadays it's more important that pastors are more equipped in leadership than perhaps they once needed to be 40, 50 years ago. I, I don't know if you would agree with that. It feels like it feels like that's true. Yeah, you know, I think that's kind of a feeling because I as I look back historically, there were churches that were growing in the early 1900s where the pastors were business leaders who got saved and uh, brought some of those leadership principles into the church. I look back at oh, John Wesley because awesome, we're Wesleyan. And Wesley was a great example of a guy who, who understood there was two parts to leading the organization. There was the spiritual part and there was the organizational part. And you have to study both. And so Wesley, you know, he encouraged the analyzing of how to lead and how to disciple people better. And he came up with this idea of, you know, this small group that would meet on a regular basis. They called them class meetings, but they weren't like a, a Sunday school class. It was a group that met with each other, supported each other, and dug into the Bible together to find the answers. And uh, Wesley was was accused of being too much focused on the organization. In fact, people said, you're just a bunch of Methodists. That's you just funny. got a method, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so I think when there's been revivals throughout history, there's been people who get both those sides and are able to balance that and don't, you know, go overly into the organizational side and say there's no spiritual part to it or overly into the spiritual part and say, you know, I don't have to learn leadership. I'll just muddle ahead. And, you know, I believe you can learn leadership by experience. And most people do. Unfortunately, most pastors will have to, will, will kill two or three churches before they learn what not to do. So my job is to tell them, if you go that way, it probably is going to divide the church. And here's a different way you could try doing it. But as you've seen all these different churches, what are some trends that you're seeing with churches that are really starting to do well? And I'm, I'm not just talking about uh, younger churches, like newer church plants, although obviously they're included in the conversation, but really... This podcast is for a leader that's trying to take an existing church and lead it toward a revitalization mode. You know, what trends are you seeing that are really working in churches that are trying to do that? Sure. I actually I put that together in a book for consultations called Cure for the Common Church because the common church is plateaued or declining. And so what I did is I said, OK, there's really four things you got to do. 
And the number one thing is you got to become an outward focused church. All churches become inward focused because, you know, you're sitting around with your friends. You're at the board meeting. You're talking about what the church needs. You're not really thinking about what the person down the street that has a dead end job and, and, and or a single mom living down the street who has three kids and doesn't know how she's going to feed them. So the, the first cure for a common church is to get them focused outward. And the way to do this is to get them asking people in the community and I give them the simple questionnaire, one sentence questionnaire they can use to go out and ask people and just ask them, what could a church like ours do to help people in this community? Now, they'll tell you how you can help them, but don't ask them, how can we help you? That's too personal. Well, you don't, don't need to help me. I'm fine. But if you say, what could a church like ours do to help people in this community? They'll tell you like after school programming for kids. One church I worked with, uh, they, they asked people that in the community. We went out Saturday morning. We had people go out on a Saturday morning and they asked each 10, they each asked 10 people and came back. We had about 10 people go out to about 100 responses. And we looked at them all and it said they needed the school nearby had had students that were failing in the in the in, in this uh, the worst in the state. And so they needed tutors. So the school, the church decided they would ask their people to give a lunch. And this was kind of a younger church. It was a planted church. It was struggling. And but it was younger people, probably, you know, 45 and under. And they and these younger people said, well, we'll come and, and, and volunteer a lunch once a week to go and mentor a kid. And by the end of the year, they had 30 people from that church. And a little church only started out with like about 60. But once it started reaching out to the community, it started putting more of its money into education, into helping the community. People in the community said, hey, that church is helping the community. Let's go there. That church is making a difference. And that's the other thing I'm really seeing. It's not just externally focused, but they, they, the people are, are attracted to them because they say that's a church where if I give money or if I give my time, it's going to go to help people. It's not going yeah. to go to build a bigger facility. Yeah. Point. You know, I mean, why do you think so many leaders? I, I mean, I've encountered a lot of pastors. I think who balk at the whole. You start talking church growth, and they they start getting annoyed. You, you know, because they think, well, church growth. It's you know, it's all about. It's too numbers focused. It's all about. Uh, you know, it's not spiritual enough. It's too businessy. It's you know, I'm not called to be a CEO. I'm called to be a uh, a pastor, and you know, I, I, why do you think there is such, I, gosh, I would say sometimes animosity toward church growth thinking among a lot of pastors out there? What do you think that's about? Well, I hate to say it, but I think it's going to weed out the leaders who aren't ready to learn. Uh, as a professor, all the time you'll have students in a class, and, and it's evident they're not there for learning, they're there to get the degree and to get some initials after their name. And um, they kind of want to do the minimum just to, to get by. And when you ask them to analyze something, they're very defensive. And I found that's true in the pastorate. If you ask a pastor to analyze something to get defensive, it's because they would rather not know what's going on and oh. feel better about things rather than get the knowledge and change things. That's what Donald McGavern said. It kind of started the church growth movement. You know, he was a hospital administrator over a number of hospitals in India. And he, he said, you know, we can't run these hospitals unless we watch every nickel and every dime and, and put it to the places where it does the most good. And the Salvation Army is another organization that practices that, that. In fact, their motto is doing the most good. They will look at how they're spending their money all the time and saying, 
is this really helping the needy or is this helping us as an organization? And churches weren't doing that. And McGavin just said, you know, if you were in, in a mission field, your church would be under scrutiny this way because you're in America. We just let you plod along without knowing how you're doing. So he said that it's it's God's intent to measure uh, how we're doing. And he never said that you, I don't know, he never said, but he didn't mean that we measure the amount of money coming in or even the amount of conversions. But really Acts 2, 42 to 48 talks about Luke describing the growth after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And it says they were growing in maturity. They were devoting themselves to the Bible and to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. So we want to grow churches where people are deepening in their in their prayer, in their uh, study of the Bible. Secondly, it says that they were uh, they were growing in unity. And the third thing, they were growing in favor among all the people. So churches today, if you're growing together and you're deepening your your understanding of the Word and you're serving the community, then it says in Acts two forty eight, God added to their number of those who are going to be saved. God will add the the conversion aspect, but too often we think that's it. So I would rather measure is a church deep, are people in the church deepening their, their study uh, in the Bible and deepening their prayer life? And if, if Jason, you or Jesse as pastors, if people are, are more into the word because you've been at that church, you, you're growing it, even though it may not show up in the attendees. So we got to get away from the attendees. Attendee size is driven a lot by geography. If you're in a growing suburb, you're going to have all these people coming in. If you're in one of those urban or inner uh, suburban areas where people are leaving, you know, and and you're staying the same size, then you're actually growing, but it's not reflected because people are leaving the community. So we got to get away from attendance measuring and we got to get to measuring are people deepening in their relationship with Jesus? Are they deepening in their being unified as a congregation? And are they deepening in serving the community so the the community is favorable towards that church in the community? Yeah. So, Bob, following up on that, I mean, it's really excellent stuff. Um, are there metrics that you've developed or used or, or seen out there um, start to talk about, you know, how do we know when that's happening? It's sort of this intangible thing. You said, you know, business, it's the bottom line. Did you make money or not? And in the church, that sort of spiritual growth aspect is hard to get your hands, your head around a little bit. So are there any techniques or ways that you've tackled that with churches or leaders? Yeah, Jesse, that's a great question because it goes right back to that book I mentioned a couple minutes ago, Cure for the Common Church. And that's available. You just Google that and look it up on Amazon, Cure for the Common Church. It's a great book, by the, the way. Fourth, Sorry. Well, yeah, I'll throw that in there. I'm glad you like it. The, the, fourth, the fourth cure is how is to evaluate. And in there, you say you do want to track conversions because, you know, Luke tracked it down, you know, and said the Lord added daily the number of those who are being saved. But that becomes kind of the 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 focus too often. And that shouldn't be the focus. Acts 2.42, it says they were growing into apostles teaching and to prayer. So if you increase the number of prayer groups and you increase the number of Bible studies in your church, chances are you're increasing the number of people that are going to those things and are deepening in their relationship. Now, you can't really measure people's spiritual depth. I mean, it'd be nice if you could. I suppose there'd be some sort of way you'd give them a long questionnaire, but that wouldn't be uh, you know, received very well. But if you come to a church, pastor, if you can, and I'm talking now to your audience, pastor, if you come to a church and at the end of two years there, more people are into Bible studies and more people are into prayer. I say you've grown the church. Luke says you've grown the church. Acts 2.42 says you've grown the church. 
Yeah, and so one of the things I look at is people in small groups, Bible study groups, and in prayer groups. Secondly, Jesse, uh, measuring are people more unified. A lot of churches are 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 like America is today is polarized. And a pastor will come into a church to revitalize the church. I coach a lot of church revitalizations, and uh, a pastor will come in and they'll be divided. And after a year or two, that pastor, she or he, will have brought the church more together, but it won't grow have grown numerically. And sometimes the denomination will come and say, hey, you've not grown it in numbers. And the pastor will say, yeah, but these people were at each other's throats, and now I've got them working together. And so one way you can measure that, as, as sociologists, we have a very easy way to measure that. You give people a scale of like one to five and say, are we more unified as a church than we were last year at this time? And you give that every year. And if they give it a three, if the average is a three the first year and the average is a four the next year, you know you're making progress. And people say, we're more unified this year than we were last year. And I don't know churches that are they're asking your people, are we more unified? Yet Jesus said that the world would know him through our unity. Uh, so what we want to do is, why are we measuring unity? And just ask people, are we more unified this year than we were last year? And pastor, if your people say they're more unified than last year, I say you've grown the church. And the third thing is, 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 is growing in favor among all the people. In Acts 2.47 is what it says, 46.47. It says they were growing in favor among all the people. So what you do is a simple little questionnaire that you send out to about a dozen different community leaders, like the school principal, school superintendent, president of a bank, um, mayor, you know, uh, councilwoman or person, uh, you know, different leaders with business owners within a church and ask them, you know, is our church uh, is our church regarded more favorably or less favorably than last year? And again, you have a little scale from one to five and five would be more favorably. One would be less favorably in the middle would be about the same. And each year you track that because we are tracking how people feel about us in the community. And we wonder why we aren't growing. Well, people have got, a, 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 you know, I've got a view of you that's not helpful and it's probably not accurate. And you don't know they do. So you just assume everybody in the, in the community likes you. And there's usually something in the community that that um, you're, you, that they view you in a negative light. So you start to offset that and you can say, we've grown in positive regard in the community this year. And that pastor is more important than conversions because conversions, it says the Lord adds those. Right. So that right. you what you can do and let God do what he does. That's I love it. That's good stuff. That's Bob. really good. You know, it, it almost feels like, I mean, that's, it's kind of the same thing. Like people in my earlier question about pastors who are resistant to church growth talk, it feels like there's a fear. Generally, there's a fear among leaders to know things as they really are uh, because they might have to admit some things aren't working as well. But I mean, I was always the kind of person like, I would rather know how they really are so that we could deal with it. How else are we going to deal with it if I don't know how the community really thinks about us? And yeah, some of that stuff's really hard, but but I find that those are the areas that the Lord really uses to not only humble us, but to open us. And um, so I think that's that's really great. I want to shift gears just a little bit, Bob, and, and talk about something because I, th- I think a lot of pastors get stuck in in this area, and that is worship. I feel like a lot of pastors are feeling that their tradition has confined them or they know or they sense that they should be trying a different style or a different time. 
uh, a different venue, but they really don't know uh, kind of where to start. Again, they're, they're feeling stuck. You have a lot to say on worship services. You've really done a great job of not only evaluating our services. So uh, for all the listeners, you know, Bob comes in with his team and he evaluates your Sunday morning and he's, he's those, he has a few sets of eyes uh, on the whole thing from the parking lot to the announcements. I was told more than once to, you know, I'm talking too much. And uh, he said it in a very loving, nice way, but, but, but really uh, he, he's able to sort of take a look at where you're getting stuck. But, but then even as we were trying to figure out what are answers for us as far as styles and times, I think where a lot of people are, you know, kind of, kind of having a hard time is, well, what do we do regarding style? So we have a, perhaps a traditional church and we know that there's a longing for a more modern or contemporary style of worship, but we don't have to do. So what we'll do is we're just going to throw in a couple of praise and worship songs by the guy that plays guitar and, uh, and we're going to fix everything. And then, and then we'll give him a little taste of the contemporary and maybe that will scratch the itch. What, Tell us a little bit about your views on, on that, on blended worship, on worship styles, because you've seen a lot and have dealt with a lot of churches who are stuck in this area. Yeah, that's a controversial area, and it's because people get become accustomed to the style they have. So if they've kind of blended it for a while, they kind of like the blended. They like the various variety. But what actually research indicates is that you, you don't grow as fast. You don't reach people for Christ if you're trying to blend it, because worship means coming close to God and kissing his feet. And so you just kind of feel like you're getting close to God, and then they throw in a song that you don't relate to. And it's kind of like if you're in the, in the car and you've got kids in the car, and I had four daughters, and now they're grown. But, you know, we're in the car, and they all want to listen to a different radio station, and no one's happy. And so what I've said often about blended services, it has just about enough of everything to make just about everybody mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that's you know, right. I understand that because people want to connect with God. They're coming to church because they want to get close with God. And they get close with a certain style of music better than another style. And that's just true of, of humans. There's research that shows that somewhere in our mid-20s, people kind of some they they harden in their musical preferences in their mid 20s and so and then the rest of their life they kind of prefer that and so when you try and drag them out of that and blend it it often damages or it becomes a distraction to their connection with God and i want worship services to connect people with God so when we blend them typically we're trying to do one of two things one is we're too small to have separate services or for some reason we don't want to have separate services so we blend it Uh, and it affects evangelism it's less likely to reach people Uh, secondly we sometimes uh, blend services just because we've grown accustomed to it we like that but the problem is research seems to indicate that the people who are outside the church don't relate to that that mixture that 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 you know muddiness of different styles coming and going, because just about the time they start to enter to worship, we throw in another song, a song that they don't relate to. And most of the churches today have around 20 to 25 minutes of worship. Uh, most Anglo churches have 20, 25 minutes. Hispanic churches, African-American churches, much more. But in Anglo churches, about 20, 25 minutes. If you're blending that 
and each song is about each song is about five minutes long. You're really only talking about four to five songs. And if one or two of them are a different genre, you really don't have a long enough time to enter in. Yeah. So what, what we found and what we practiced at your church, Jason, and really helped grow the church was let's have another service and tell people this is a different genre of music. It's a different radio station. It's a different TV channel. It's for different people. And you don't have to go to it. You can come to it if you want to, but you don't have to go to it. But we need to reach out to people who don't relate or are familiar with the genre that we practice. Now, I don't advocate that you end your traditional service because those people like that genre. My wife is a Lutheran. She grew up in the Lutheran church. She loves the great Lutheran hymns, Mendelssohn, Bach. She loves all that. And it means a lot to her because growing up, that's what they played in her church. And her church was a strong place of support and help to her. I grew up in the church that the Gaithers went to, the, the Gaither Trio, you know, and so I'm used to hearing guitars, drums, and kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a country, uh, you know, a gospel style of, of worship. Now, um, we both like different styles, and uh, but, you know, sometimes we just prefer one over the other. And uh, that's true of really people in, in the community today. In fact, I was just told by one, one uh, colleague, uh, Wayne Lyon, uh, when we were down in Jamaica together, and he said his church in Washington, D.C., it was so diverse in the area that they had 10 different worship services, most of them in different languages. And they were the largest Wesleyan church in the area. They had 600 people. But he said, you know, we really only had, we had one church, church with six different, uh, 10 different congregations of 60. But they and they even had, you know, ones like a a Hispanic hip hop service. And his wife, who is our general superintendent, she asked him, she said, you know, are, is, are they really singing? Is, is that about Jesus and that hip hop stuff? And he said, well, every now and then I hear the word Jesus. So uh, <laughs> but they're reaching a hip hop generation that wouldn't come to a Anglo service or even a Hispanic, you know, worship service. We can learn from the movie theaters. Years ago, in towns when I grew up, there was like three movie theaters, and each one would play one movie for like a couple weeks. And they had their own individual concession stands. They were down the street from each other. And then what happened, at least my understanding of what happened, is that these big companies started buying up these movie theaters and realizing they were too costly to own several movie theaters in the same town. It'd be better to put them in one location, offer a, a different genres of, of movies, and have one concession stand, one electric bill, one roof to repair. Uh, and churches now started to realize that. And the cool thing about that, uh, Jesse and, and Jason, it really allows different cultures to run the organization together. You see, I think people of different cultures get to know each other better by running the organization together rather than by worshiping together. Worship, we've tried to make it a unity experience. And people say, well, we need to be, we need to worship like in the book of Revelation where everybody's with. That's in heaven. In heaven, <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's different down here. And I'm looking forward to that. But down here, it, it seems that people, uh, if, when they go into worship, they really don't get to know their neighbors. They don't really break down prejudices uh, by sitting next to each other or by being exposed to music. Uh, so if you want to have a unity service and blend it, that's when you should blend it so people can be a, a, a exposed to different styles. But the purpose is unity. But if your purpose is worship, 
which the Hebrew word means come close and kiss God's feet. If your job there is to get people close to kiss God's feet, then you ought to do it in the musical genres that they feel most comfortable with. Now, I know what your listeners are thinking. They're thinking, Bob, I've only got 80 people. How do I do two services? Well, I actually talk about this. Uh, I have a, a website. It's called churchhealth.wiki. All one word, churchhealth.wiki. .wiki is like a URL uh, designator now, just .wiki, churchhealth.wiki. You go in there, and it's links to about 2,000 articles, and you just search by keyword. If you search in there about keyword about how to start a second service, what I found is if you're under 100 people, what you do is you blend the services, but you do what's called a compartmentalized blend. In other words, you maybe start with 20 minutes of contemporary music, then go into a more traditional service with the liturgy, the call to worship, and oh, things like that. The people, the people don't like it, and they like the old way. They just show up 20 minutes late. Or you take the contemporary <laughs> and you add it on to the end. You say, okay, now we've had our traditional service. Those of you who would like to go can go. Those who would like to stay for 15 minutes of, of contemporary worship, we're going to do that now. If you're under 100, you do that. Up to you get to 100. When you get to 100, or if you're over 100 right now, you ask 50 people to, to, get, to for one year, come to this new service and help be a seed to plant this new service. And um, at the end of the year, they either replace themselves with someone that'll that'll come to that new service, or they um, re-up for another year. And what it does is it allows you to, like those movie theaters, begin to offer a, a different movie. Just think of what it would be like today if the movie theaters blended their movies. I mean, what if you came in and started out as a family-friendly movie and it went <laughs> to a horror movie awesome. and it went to some sort of, you know, you'd sit there and say, I don't I don't relate to this. I want to go to a movie that is the style that I want to experience. And so people say, well, it's catering to people's wants. No, it's catering to people's way that they communicate to God. And I know I communicate more in a kind of rhythm and blues. I love being at African-American churches. I was just in Jamaica and I was a commencement speaker down there for college. And man, their worship was great. And I mean, people dancing everywhere and uh you know, that's not going to happen in a lot of Lutheran churches, but that doesn't mean that the Lord's not in both places. Right. And so right. wouldn't it be great if we could have a Lutheran church that also had an African-American or a Jamaican-American congregation worshiping at that's a different right. time? So that's kind of the way it works, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. I um, Well, listen, this has been so good. I just want to kind of one one more question that I was thinking about as – you know, in your consulting line of work, when you go out there and you are helping churches, I know that when you come into a church, you have things that you're looking at specifically or looking for. You know, I, I imagine a, a lot of listeners, they might not feel like they can afford a church consultant or, or they just don't know they can convince their board that to get a church consultant because, I mean, people are all skeptical of consultants. It's very strange. Um, I'm sure there are reasons for that, but but those reasons escape me. Uh, but you know, if, if you're a church, you know, you're a pastor now in, uh, in a new congregation that you just started at, you know, you're in your first year, what are the things that you're looking at, you know, to see if, if, is this ministry healthy and you know, how, how do you start, where are the things that you start to address first? What are the things that you would be looking for in a new church? Sure. You know, what I do is exactly what what you describe is exactly what I do in the book Cure for the Common Church. 
I kind of tried to make Cure for the Common Church a type of self uh, consultation. That's good. And it basically has four chapters. And the first chapter is why do we need to reach out and here's how to do it. Second chapter is, you know, and I, I go through, we want to make learners. The church needs to be a place where people are learning. Jesus told us to go and make disciples. The word disciple is actually in the Greek learner. We're supposed to go and make people who are learners. So that's, that's one of our goals. And so, and then small groups is how we get people connected. So I look at a church, I say, how much is it reaching out? How much are people each week saying they learned something because they were at, at the church that weekend, either through a Sunday school or the, or the, or the sermon? And number three, do people, have people found a smaller group within the big group where they have some close friends? And this is something that, you know, Jesus did. I mean, he pulled out the 12 and discipled him, them. And all through church history, we see this. And then finally, are, what are we measuring? Are we measuring conversions? Are we measuring that people are maturing in their faith? People are becoming more unified. People are um, uh, serving the community in, in, greater, in greater ability. So I look for those four things. What I did in this book, Cure for the Common Church, I know you told me you said I could share about any of my books. I didn't plan on sharing about any of them, just see what would happen. But it seems like that this podcast is kind of centered around that book. It's called Cure for the Common Church. And basically, it's four chapters. You read that chapter, and there's questions at the end for your leaders to go through together and to ask yourself, okay, you know, have we been spending most of our money towards meeting the needs of the believers? And taking care of our existing congregation. Most churches will have 10, 15, sometimes 20 percent centered on people that are outside the church. But still, you know, how are we going to answer God one day when he says when he says you're the pastor of the church and you spend 80 percent of your income taking care of Christians? Ouch. I, I, yeah. I think Jesus would, would will, will hold us accountable <laughs> for that. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Yeah. So that, that book probably best. Some, it's a quick read. It's only, I think, 180 pages uh, long, and it's uh, 170 pages long, and it has questions at the end of each chapter to go through each leader. So if someone says, I can't afford a consultation, I do that. If, if they have interest in, in connecting with me, they can just go to bobwhitesell.com, B-O-B-W-H-I-T-E-S-E-L, one word, dot com, or they can go to churchhealth.net. Both go to the same place, churchhealth.net, kind of like churchhealth.wiki. Really believe if the church can be healthy and it, it takes a different analysis, it's kind of like a doctor. If you're not healthy, you know a lot about your body, but you need some outside eyes to tell you why you're not healthy. And that's the same thing with churches. Churches, you know that something's just not right. And so you want to go see a person with outside eyes who's trained in analyzing what is wrong? And that's what I do in my consulting work. That's why I teach my students to do. I actually uh, have, as you mentioned, Jason, when I come to a consultation, I'll bring along three or four people who they apply to shadow me and learn consulting by coming. And they also offer insights as well. A lot of them are pastors of churches, denominational leaders, etc. But church health is, 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 is just like human health, is that uh, we know something's wrong but we can't self-diagnose. We need to bring in an outside set of eyes of someone with credentials and experience and say, can you help me understand what's wrong? And then we can refuse to take the doctor's advice. And that's fine too, but at least we've got those outside eyes. So churchhealth.net or bobwhitesell.com is the way they can connect with me. Bob, I just want to thank you so much. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us today. And 
it's always great talking to you. You coming back to New Jersey anytime soon? Yeah, I think I'm coming back working with another church up there, another Presbyterian church in about uh, sometime, I think, mid-July. Awesome. And uh, so uh, looking looking forward to it again. Hit me up. We'll go over to our uh, Robinson Ale House. We went there about, feels oh, like we went there like go. 15 times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Bob. Um, I always feel like when I'm talking with you, I, I get I get a whole class in a conversation. I mean, really, you're... Uh, you have such great insights. You're such a great resource to the church. And and I think what I really appreciate about you is your optimism for the church. So really good stuff from Bob, Jason. Um, I, I sat and listened mostly because, man, you just had so much to share with us that is uh, beneficial, encouraging, good reminders all throughout. Any big takeaways for you from your time with Bob as we've listened and, and kind of heard him share? Yeah, man. I mean, I think the first thing is just like his energy is like through the charts, man. The guy is just, he's got a high motor, you know, he's a high motor guy. And uh, it's always great to talk with him because he's got so much to say and he's got so much uh, wisdom from his time spent with other churches and all the places that he's been and the the books that he's he's read. You know, I think for me, it was definitely when he was talking about church growth, uh, when he went back to Acts 2 and he was saying, you know, it's not just numbers. And that's the thing that's a thing where we all, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to confess. All right. Mm-hmm. If the numbers are going down, so's my spirit. <laughs> like right. I want to see everything go up. I want to see more people coming. And when less people start coming, it doesn't take long for me to start immediately questioning everything that we're doing. And it's ridiculous. Um, I know that in my head, but I, I can't help feel it in my heart. And this was a nice reminder that like in Acts chapter two, in the the growing church. They were growing, but they, you know, numbers was actually the last on the list. They were growing in maturity and unity and favor among the people. I feel like that's where our church is right now, like growing in favor among people outside of our church. And then last was growing in numbers. And I thought that was awesome. That's just a really good reminder of what church growth is and should be and uh, what we ought to be focusing on. How about you? What What's like, takeaway that you had. Yeah, I I would echo that. I think um, that this, you know, conversation about church growth, you know, I, uh, I can't help it. Tuesday morning, we get back into staff meeting and immediately we see Sunday's attendance numbers. And, uh, you know, I look at our software, I see how our giving is going this month and all these things. And you're, uh, you know, I get, I get sucked into that game, even though you and I, we've talked over and over again about how, you know, to be careful with that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's one metric, right? It matters. I mean, having people there, having giving coming in to support the mission is, is, is vital, but it's not the most important metric. In fact, those things come way down the road behind, uh, growing uh, in our in our life and faith and our relationships with each other. And so really refreshing to hear Bob remind us of that and to put some sort of a theological weight and, and foundation to it um, because it almost feels like um, maybe past conversations about that kind of stuff, it kind of feels like a cop-out a little bit. Well, we're growing yeah. spiritually. We're not growing numerically. Right. or Like that's sort right. of bad words in the pastor world when we're you know, we all pad the stats when we talk to each other about how many people come to our, you know, the church on Sunday or whatever. But right. So, Pregnant women count as two. That's <laughs> right. At least two, maybe two and a half, might be twins, right? You never know. So, right. uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that number, at least 20 more add that in there. Right. And, um, <laughs> right. 
and and I think it's so crucial. So if we could really take that in and, and believe it, and uh, even you know write it on the wall, put a poster up, and say it's not it's not about those numbers. It's about helping people mature in their their life as followers of Jesus from wherever they are, um, and that's the metric. I think um, that's encouraging to me. And yeah. uh, you know, so good reminder from Bob. Really, really solid. Yeah, and so and I want to encourage our listeners to check out some of his resources. They are really good. Um, Cure for the Common Church. I was actually just thumbing through that book today, and um, I, I had forgotten because I'd read it five years ago when I took his class. I had forgotten what a good practical resource it is. It actually walks you through like you are doing your own church consultation. It's got you asking questions and helping you think through different system kind of things. And uh, so we're going to link to that in our show notes. You could go to our website, reclaimleader.com, and go to episode one, and we will make sure that we have a link to that. Also, I'm going to throw in a link for another book. I actually like this other book very much. Uh, it's a little dated. It's from 2000, but it's another Bob Weitzel book uh, that has to do with different generations, generational cultures called A House Divided, Bridging the Generation Gaps in Your Church. And I thought it was a really nice primer and starting to think through what are the generation gaps and, and how does that work? Um, so I just want to, we'll link up to that resource as well. And I just want to encourage, you know, all the, the leaders out there to, I mean, listen, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts and, uh, I don't always do anything with that. I, I kind of forget about it. And I want to encourage all of our folks to, to take a step, you know, what, what would a next step look like for you based on what you were inspired by, you know, during this podcast or where you think God is leading you? Maybe to take some time and just prayerfully consider that as you get move on to the rest of your day or night or whatever it is that you're doing. For me, I think it's it's going to be to reread uh, Common Cure, especially the chapter when it talks about small groups. Know that that's an area that we are struggling a little bit, uh, kind of getting getting going and really becoming um, more mission focused small groups. And he's got a chapter on that in there. So I'm going to take that. I'm going to go back and and then through that lens of of church growth, the way that he explained through Acts 2, I think that's something I, I really want to work on this week. So what, what about you? What are some, you have some other takeaways or some next steps? You know, J- yeah, Jason, I think as, as I listened, what came to mind for me, um, and I think it might have been your question that led into this, but dealing in reality and kind of evaluating what's actually happening, what's actually going on. And so I think my, my next step is I'm kind of just listening, thinking, brainstorming. My my initial response is that I want to sit down with my staff and just say, where are we pretending and where do we need to be better at dealing in reality and uh, facing what's actually there and not maybe what we hope is there or what a, a modified number or something would say is there. So I think that's that's a conversation I want to, I want to bring into our staff meeting uh, here coming up and just say, where do we need to deal in reality and where are we pretending? I, I think those are uh, kind of two good concepts that uh, I took out of this time for with Bob uh, and that I can immediately apply in our own staff context. So it'll be interesting to see where that conversation goes. Hopefully it's not, I'm pretending to like my boss or something like that from our staff. <laughs> I think uh, probably more of a strategy focus or something. So, um, but uh, important conversation. Thank you for listening to Reclaimed Leader. Join us next time for more insights, interviews, and resources to help you in your leadership journey.